Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Recorded live. Good evening. Welcome to the July 1st, 2017 edition of Daily Talk. Researcher 135's Community Call with your host, Rich Bernardo. Our guest tonight is Jan Olandiz. She's an Episcopal priest and a retired award certified chaplain. But she's on here tonight to talk about her books regarding ghosts. She has several that are available on Amazon. She'll be talking about them tonight. And this is going to be an exciting show. So call in 724 444. 7444, enter call ID 137393 plus the pound sign with your comments and questions. And here comes Jan now. Good evening, Jan. Hi, Rich. How are you doing? Fantastic. How are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm great. I thank you so much for this opportunity to discuss my books and to talk with people about ghosts, one of my favorite subjects. And um, I guess to start out with, I should tell you why I'm fascinated by ghosts. That'd be fantastic. Okay, well, uh, I wasn't one of those people that was psychic as a child or anything, but in um, as a young person, I started having uh, precognitive dreams that came true, names, dates, and places. It was really odd. Um, and I could have been frightened by it, but I found it fascinating. And after that, um, I had the experience of living in a really haunted house. Um, I write about it in my book about ghosts, which is nonfiction. And I talk about that and many other true experiences of my own and others. But in my case, uh, this experience of living in a haunted place, there were so many strange things that happened. And it was, it was sort of eerie at times. And I decided that I could either be frightened by it or I could choose to learn from it and learn all I could about it. And that's the route that I took. So I've been sort of fascinated by it all my life. And um, now I've been, and I have written about the paranormal before uh, in uh, writing about uh, spirituality and literature with my co-author, Bill Coopersmith. Uh, But now I'm writing some things on my own. I've written two books of fictional ghost stories. However, I must say that some of these stories actually um, have some basis in some of my own experiences with the paranormal and those of others. Uh, The first collection of stories is called Death Be Not Loud, Ghosts, Haunts, and Tall Tales for Restless Nights. And it has a series of humorous but also scary ghost stories with titles like Youth Do, The Lawn Jockey, Death Be Not Loud, El Cinco de Mayo, and others. And my second volume of ghost stories is called Rest in Fleece, Ghost Tall Tales and Horror Stories. And it follows in the same tradition. 
it's a slightly larger collection, and it's, I think, pretty good. It also has some funny haikus. So after writing those, I decided, you know, I've been talking about ghosts. Why not write something nonfiction? So I did. I put together a book called About Ghosts, a, a useful handbook. All of these are available on Amazon under my name. And anyway, um, the handbook is fun because I've taken my theological and spirituality education and put this to work in terms of what, you know, to ask questions about what ghosts mean. We all know what they are generally. People, you know, read about them, they talk about them, they see them on television on these ghost hunting shows, which have become quite popular. And there are enormous groups on places like Facebook of people uh, whose special interest this is. Uh, you can just and find Jana, people. Jana, oh, I understand you had, uh, you had also written and co-written academic articles about spirituality and fiction. So a lot in your work uh, background and spiritual background led up to this. Uh, tell me a little more about how you're exploring the deeper contextual meaning of these manifestations and, and how you talk about it in about ghosts. Oh, okay. I would be happy to. Uh, Anyway, I'm uh, trying to approach ghosts, not just from a popular perspective of telling the stories, although I do tell some so that we have something to work with. But, and I should add that I'm also teaching a graduate uh, continuing education course uh, called The Spirituality of the Ghost Story. So I'm working with people to look at the literature, the fiction, like the stories that I've written, uh, to mm-hmm. see what the deeper what the deeper meaning is. So now we go from there, and we look at. I'm looking at ghosts from several perspectives, and one of them is that I want to, I want people to understand that ghosts are they're cross cultural and cross historical. They have very similar things are reported through many cultures and many languages from many countries, all kind of telling the same story. I find that pretty interesting. So that makes you wonder, is it part of, does our universal unconscious, as uh, Jung would have it, is that that a player here? Uh, Is it, you know, are ghosts mental? Are 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 they all spirits of dead people? Or what else could they possibly be? And in studying this, I come up with the idea that perhaps some are spirits of the departed, but that they may be other things as well. And my chapter in my book about ghosts um, discusses uh, that we talk about what what different kinds of uh, what different kinds of ghosts there are and what they may mean. There are things like um, ghosts we have ghosts as superheroes. Um, many times in literature and in stories and in popular film, the ghosts are, you know, very, they can do things that people can't do. So we really like it. The ghost is like the characters in a, in a Marvel comic. They're like Superman. They're like Batman. They can live out our frustrations. They can do things we can't do. So we, we that's one reason that we like those stories. And, uh, in talking about that, we, you know, it's also, uh, there's another question of, um, 
post-mortem retribution. So a lot Mm -hmm. of those stories are about, you know, um, uh, somebody does somebody wrong, and then the person dies, but they come back as a ghost, and they get back at the guy. So he ends up paying a price, and we can talk about this in terms of moral uh, or ethical theology, like, uh, are the, you know, um, is this, is there, can you get justice in the afterlife? Um, we like to think so, even if maybe really it isn't so. So it's very, it's a really interesting uh, thing to discuss and think about. Then uh, moving on to other ways to approach ghosts, we have um, ghosts that, are, that represent modern dysfunctions. Which mm-hmm. I mean, we have needy ghosts, for example. You have people who um, seem attached to a place or a person, like they're needy. Their um, their their behavior seems repetitive. They seem obsessed, which in a way is like a you know, it's like an emotional dysfunction. So then we get into this idea of ghosts as uh, you know, ghosts that are um, that are represent dysfunction, and to look at that, one thing that I thought of was that if you think of a haunted house, which is a place that ghosts frequent, if you think of it symbolically, the haunted house could represent the person and the the person's mindset, and the mind of that person is haunted by whatever dysfunction it is, whether and the person is codependent on the haunted house on the haunting of the house. For example, um, when we talk about haunted stories, the one that comes to one of the big ones of the last, you know, decades was the Amityville Horror. You're familiar Mm -hmm. with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, most of us are. Most of us saw the movie, read the book. And in that story, whether, you know, it was supposed to be real, some people say it was made up, whatever, it doesn't matter. The idea is you have this family, it's a classic story, the family moves to this house and it becomes progressively more haunted by some supposedly some kind of demonic being or power. And Mm -hmm. the longer, you know, it got pretty bad. And the longer, the worse, the longer they stayed, the worse it got. So I don't know about you, but when I'm reading this story, I'm going, why don't they leave? It's driving me crazy. If that was me, I'd be out of there, you know, if all these things are happening. But in all mm-hmm. these stories, the families or the person always stays. And so you have to ask yourself, if, if you compare that to psychology, to if you want to put it in a psychological context, it's like a compulsion or an addiction. Mm-hmm. There's a codependence. They need that, that the, they need that haunting for some reason, even though it's destructive to them. And there's a lot of examples of this in literature, but one of my favorites, uh-huh. A perfect, really good illustration is Stephen King's book, The Shining. Yes. Um, in that, you know, in that story, this family um, goes to this remote hotel in the mountains of Colorado, and the father gets a job as a winter caretaker, hoping that he right. will be able to to write his book. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And they are told, you know, they're told that the hotel can be snowed in for weeks at a yeah. time. Yeah. Hold that thought for a moment. I sure. would like to welcome a couple of callers to the line. Oh, First great. of all, we have 
We have Washington on the line, and hello, uh, South Nevada. Hi, Washington. If you have hey, a question hi. or would like to make a comment for Jan, go right ahead, Washington. Oh, I'm happy listening. This is Wendy Williams. Hello. Hi, Welcome, Wendy. Welcome to the show. We're glad you're here. Thank you. Hello, South Nevada. Do you have a question or a comment? No, Flix. I sure don't. I want to listen. Well, come right on in. You're great. If you do decide <laughs> you want to ask a question or make a comment, we'll feel free. Okay, Jan, go ahead with what you were saying. All righty. Yeah, just feel free to um, – I'm new at this, so, Rich, just give me a heads up when you've got someone on that might want to say something. Um, Absolutely. So we, Okay, we were talking about The Shining, and if you think of it, this is a really – it's a very good example of putting the idea of hauntings in a psychological context because the hotel, this remote hotel in the mountains of Colorado is called The Overlook, which could be like the superego, and the – uh, the main character that was played by Jack Nicholson in the movie, uh, Mr. Torrance. And Torrance, by the way, the family name, means watchtower. So again, that's another hint from the author that this is about more than just ghosts, that the ghosts stand for something. So the boiler that is about to the, the owners of the hotel tell the character that he's got to watch the boiler because it could it, it heat, it's essential to heat the building, but it could blow up if it's not watched very carefully, which is analogous to the anger issues that this character has. So this is played out in a way, in a story about ghosts, but the ghosts relate to the psychology and the dysfunctions of these of actual people and and real life. So I think it's, it was a brilliant story, um, and it gives us another context in which to think about ghosts, because even if we believe that they are uh, spirits of the dead, which there certainly is a lot of evidence that there have been sightings of these, there is also a lot of, I think, good evidence that that you know, that we can take ghosts and talk about them in different ways and look at them in different ways. Um, there's there are many different uh, perspectives. Um, another, you know, if we want to talk about types of ghosts, there are lots. Um, it's one thing to say, oh, uh, I don't believe in ghosts, or I believe in ghosts, but what exactly are we talking about? Rich, what do you think of when I say a ghost? What what comes to your mind? Well, it's a manifestation usually of a loved one that is trying to communicate uh, in most cases. That, that's my experience with, with the concept okay. of a ghost. Okay. That's very good. Um, there's a lot of different kinds. that I'm going to describe some that I talk about in my book. Um, one is... I like to think of it as the ghost as film strip. Also, I have a chapter called The Ghost Out of Time. This is like you see figures that seem to walk through the walls as if there were no walls there, and they're completely oblivious to your presence or to anybody being there. But you see them. They're like an old film strip. And they see it's as if you're looking at another slice of time, uh, and for, and so that's one type. Then there's the ghost that you mentioned. The ghost is a sentient, knowledgeable being. This ghost appears very aware of those presence, and it may or may not communicate with them. Following on that, you have the ghost as messenger. 
Now, this kind of ghost may or may not be someone known to the witness that he has a message to convey. And he does this telepathically or verbally or in many ways. Um, an example would be like the ghost appearing somewhere significant in a way that would be meaningful to that witness. Um, also, these ghosts may appear to people during a crisis time. Then you have the ghost as harbinger. The, this is a ghost that appears to warn us about something, about a danger. And this is a whole interesting category because they're sort of like a, they can be like a guardian angel. Like, you know, these people that they, they're in, say, a ship that's about to go down, but somebody has um, a vision or a dream about his mother and who's dead, and she says, you've got to wake up, you've got to wake up. And he wakes up in time to save himself and the other crew members. So that's sort of a, um, you know, an omen ghost, a, a helper. It's a save you in the nick of time ghost. However, other people might who don't believe in ghosts might say, well, the person subconsciously was aware that something was going wrong, and so he um, his subconscious formed this dream or this vision of this ghost which to make him act on this on whatever knowledge it was, and he did so in time to save people. So there's two ways to look at that. Then there are spirits of the once living. This is somebody who is a, a relative or perhaps just someone that lived in the home before you moved there. It's usually neutral, sometimes welcoming. And people notice something there, even if you can't see it. You, you can sense something, and your pets will sense it. Your dog may not go into a certain room, or the dog may wag its tail, you know, notice as if somebody's there. Another type of ghost would be called, and this isn't really a ghost, it's called, um, in the literature, they refer to them as elementals. And they would, these would be entities that were never human. They're something else. They may be nature spirits, which were uh, called divas by the people in Findhorn, which is that colony in Scotland. Uh, they may be, I don't know, fairies, elves, nature beings, whatever, but they weren't human. Um, another kind of spirit, which was not an, element, not an elemental, but not a human spirit either, uh, are referred to as shadow people. Uh, there's all kinds of things that fall into this category. Um, spiritual, spiritualist tradition warns us that these might be dangerous, but they're not demons. Uh, then we have ghosts with an agenda. These spirits may have something on their mind, and something is propelling them and prevents them from, as they say, crossing over. And this may be related to that needy, dysfunctional thing that we discussed before. But for whatever reason, like people who can't leave the haunted house no matter how bad it is, or who can't give up something that's terrible for them, the ghosts, although they may need to move on, they just can't. Uh, then we have contagious ghosts. These are a kind of a dangerous ghost. They have about them an air of malaise and negative energy, and they're, it's very palpable. You can feel it. If you enter a place that there's something that this kind of energy is present, you definitely notice it, and you don't want to be around it. Um, so Karen, if I might take a, a, a sure. moment, but I don't want to lose your train of thought, but I understand that you had your own haunting experience as well when you lived in a very old house in New England that was, was haunted. Could you tell us about that? I absolutely would love to. 
it was, um, first of all, it was really a, a pretty house. It was about 14 rooms, two stories, and it was built in the late 1700s, and it was uh, in the, on the New England coast, and you could see the ocean from it. And it had features like the original uh, rippled glass was in the window, some of the windows. It had original wallpaper on the wall, but it had been restored partially, um, but not remodeled. So it had it was essentially the same old place that you know it had been. And no one had lived there full time since the original family. And I think that had they had died out or sold it. Um, like in the 1930s, and subsequent to that, it had been a summer house. So up until that point, no one until my then spouse and I uh, had lived there for during the whole winter, during the whole year. And so I don't know whether that brought something on or whether it was always haunted, but I did speak to other people who had spent time there, and they too had noticed a lot of unusual things. So anyhow, I think... The first one thing that we noticed right away, we had a, a very large, very large dog. It was a um, Newfoundland puppy, and it probably weighed 100 pounds at the time. And that dog would not go into a couple of the rooms. I mean, it absolutely wouldn't. And one of the rooms that was very creepy, the dog would stand in the threshold and shake, and it just and lean back. It would not go in the room at all. So that was one thing. The dog noticed something. Then one room that we were going to use for our bedroom that was downstairs, it was this beautiful room with a fireplace and a bay window that looked out on the ocean. Uh, it was just beautiful. But we both felt it was very creepy. And you felt at night like someone was staring at you. It was very, very creepy. And so we ended up by mutual agreement without really talking about it, moving upstairs to another room, after which was much better. Um, then one day, we had pe- we uh, invited people over for dinner. We're all downstairs eating, and um, you know nobody else is home. But upstairs, you could hear footsteps, doors opening and closing, and the little dead block, deadbolt locks being turned. So everybody kind of looked at each other. We knew something was going on, and we kind of didn't really address it. We just went on with dinner, but. And it sounded, it wasn't really scary if you didn't think about us being the only people there. So that was one thing. Another thing was that, and this I understand is quite typical in haunted houses, things would disappear from their usual spot and you'd find it later someplace totally unrealistic that you would never put it. I found books in the refrigerator, things like that, just completely unreal. And so it went, I'll, you know, just, uh, and sometimes you just felt watched. It was a very, it was uncomfortable. Um, we had, there were two rooms that most of the manifestations happened in, and one of them was upstairs, and it was right over, it should have been the warmest room in the house, because it sat uh, on, in a room, it was over this room that had a Franklin stove and open registers so that heat would just go right upstairs but it was colder than all the other rooms. And it was, a, it was a very uncomfortable place to be. I mean, even in the broad daylight, it just didn't feel right. So that was another thing. Jan, uh, could I ask a question? You, you should, certainly may. This is, this is Wendy. 
Did you yes. ever choose to um, do anything to bless the house or clear it or balance it or ask it to work with your energy? Or did that just not fit your belief system or did you not have that knowledge at the time? Well, this was quite a long time ago, Wendy, so that wasn't something that crossed you know, crossed our threshold at all. Although now, it's interesting sure. that you bring that up because as clergy, um, I have often been asked to bless places and to clear clear areas where there's a negative feeling and it definitely does make a difference. I wish I had known about it then. So uh-huh. great question. Great question. What happened? Uh, we ended up having one kind of really scary thing happened that fortunately I slept through. I'm so grateful. I don't know what what I would have done if it had happened to me, but uh, my husband at the time actually saw a ghost one night, and this ghost, this figure, he saw, it was, how do I explain this? It was like he, he woke up in the middle of the night, and he started, he tried to wake me up, and I'm a real light sleeper, but I was like, he couldn't budge me. And he saw a lot of, like bright lights, and they formed into a figure of a of a person, like a woman in a very old-fashioned long dress. And without speaking, she communicated like telepathically to him, and she communicated that there were she had no issue with him, but that there were some negative ghosts in the house, and they we should leave as soon as we could, or we would be in danger. And he woke when I woke up in the morning. He told me about it. And we had been planning to move anyway. We were renting the house. And so as it happened, we were out of there in a couple weeks, which was good, I think, uh, under those circumstances. So that was my, that was my, uh, my own haunted, haunted house story. In your uh, working uh, with Paris work, uh, you accumulated various stories from different people in hospitals and hospice settings. Have those made it to end of the books? Is that some of the research um, material that you... Yeah, tell us a little about that. Well, one of the things, when you talked about... Uh, when Wendy mentioned about uh, clearing places, um, when I worked in a hospital... I've, I worked in uh, several hospitals as a chaplain, and there were times... And it's natural. I mean, think about it. Hospitals are places where people are sick and where they die and where there's a lot of... You know, it can be difficult, even with the best staff and the, you know, best of everything, there's a lot of energy there that's not the greatest. And sometimes spaces get kind of negative. And I was often asked to go in and sort of clear a space, which I would do. I would bless it and, you know, uh, sprinkle holy water. And uh, often that really helped. And And it would be lighter. Sometimes it would be a room where several people had died in a row, you know, and it just seemed to accumulate. Um, Another thing that that happened just so often, and this is one of the things that made me want to write about it, it was after I started working in in the hospitals that I realized that, um, and working in as a, a clergy person, I realized that paranormal experiences are not really paranormal. They're normal. They happen to so many people. They and people often don't. They're afraid to talk about it. Now, when I lived in England, that wasn't true. It's much more accepted there. There's, you know, things are haunted. People talk about it. It's accepted. No big deal. But here, until lately, that people wouldn't. Now it's quite popular, but people didn't want to discuss it. 
And so one of the reasons that I wrote a, my book about ghosts, the useful handbook, is to give people some emotion, some support to let them know that this happens to countless people and that they have all kinds of um, paranormal or spiritual or ghostly experiences that are difficult to explain that doesn't make them less real. They're real. And so that was one of the things that really motivated me to write. Uh, one kind of story that happens a lot in hospice and in hospitals is that a lot of times before people before people die, they will see a, a family member or a, a spirit of someone that they knew, and they find it, it, you know, their family would tell me about this, or sometimes the patient would tell me. And they found it quite reassuring. And it's happened so often that I, I again, I don't think it, it, that many people wouldn't be making this up. One particular instance that I remembered was a woman who was a patient in a hospice that I worked for who she had, had uh, she was had end stage dementia so she hadn't spoken for a long long time and she was a, very close to death her daughter walked in one day to hear her mother carrying on a conversation quite lucidly uh, with somebody in the corner, although no one was there. But the, her, it was like her old mother was back. She was talking. She was very lucid. After that, um, the you know, it ended, and then the mother passed away a couple days later. But the daughter was convinced that some that she had actually seen some someone, and medically speaking, it's very difficult to explain this the lucidity when she had been not, you know, non-conversational and not lucid for so long. So that's so, the kind of thing. You go ahead. Go ahead. There's a wonderful um, TED talk on that exact topic from a gentleman named Dr. Christopher Kerr, K-E-R-R. I don't know if you're familiar with, and he um, is a hospice director in Buffalo, New York, and has mm. done a lot of research and has been filming um, patients and showing that they are lucid, not demented. They're not in the state of dementia. And it's easy to tell the difference between the two, but because um, our our traditional medical community is not used to allowing for lucid dreaming and for what you're describing of these great conversations going on, and they go to the place too often can go to the place of oh my goodness, they must be in a state of dementia, um, et cetera, or, or you know, some other, other, other state, when it's actually lucidity. It's they're, they're passing on and they're connecting with their guides, they're connecting with their ancestors and their loved ones and getting a lot of comfort to be prepared to pass over. So it's a great TED Talk. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. I'll have to look it up. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm trying to think um, that the whole subject, I think, of uh, people having visions around the time of their death is really fascinating, and it's it, you know it just happens so often that I think it's probably quite you know more common than people expect. Um, one of the things I touched on well, a little few minutes ago, but didn't really get into, was um, that in I spent some time in England. I went to school there uh, for a year, and I found that people there were much more likely to talk about their experiences and mm-hmm. 
the school that I attended. Actually, the dorm was haunted. There was one room that I swear, the year before I was there, there was a student had actually been awakened out of sleep and thrown out of his bed by some by spirit. And the library was haunted, which I can vouch for because I was there a lot. And you definitely, it wasn't bad, but you just knew something was watching you. You felt something. It was there. And um, I had a real interesting experience at the um, the parish church in the in the town, the village that I lived in. I was in one morning uh, preparing for the the morning service, and it was still dark. It was really, you know, very early, and it was winter. And mm-hmm. it's a it was a very old church. It was like uh, from the 1200s. It was Norman. And I'm in there. I'm all alone, and there are no walls. Everything is, like, wide open. You can see everything. And I heard footsteps, and they were really heavy, and I was wearing rubber-soled shoes. I knew it wasn't me. And I went back to what I was doing, and I heard them again, and it was so creepy that I just, I got really frightened, and I finished what I was doing, and I just locked up and got out of there as soon as I could. Um, But that kind of thing, I guess, was quite common over there, and, well, here, too, for that matter. But that was one that, was one that I definitely heard, and, um, you know, it was, it was pretty interesting. It got my attention. You talked about uh, doing graduate work at, at Oxford and, and Berkeley. I'm sure in that research you ran across a lot of the phenomena as well. Could you tell us a little more about that as well? Yes. Um, well, one of the things that... I ended up doing, um, I've been a nonfiction writer, um, writing about spirituality and fiction and the spirituality of the ghost story and uh, things like that, because I've been really interested in how people address the paranormal in literature. And um, my co-author, Bill Bill Coopersmith, and I have written a number of uh, nonfiction book chapters and um, journal articles on the subject, and as I said, I um, I teach continuing education courses for, um, oh, you know, psychologists, chaplains, clergy, uh, healthcare people, uh, social workers on, in this area, and it's always really interested me because of the, pos- the context is so interesting. Um, there's so many different kinds of experiences and they're expressed in literature in different ways and um, I've mentioned some of them for example the you know the, po- the post-mortem retribution where the ghosts come back and they get even that's a, a quite a common theme and it's, it poses questions of uh, you know uh, uh, moral theology and uh, ethics you know well what, what's right what's wrong that uh, um, and so uh, that was one thing. One th- um, there's a lot of interesting theories that you run into. Um, one theory that inter- I got interested in a, um, an, archeo- an archaeologist from Cambridge uh, who I think he died in the 70s. His name was uh, T.C. Lethbridge, and he was very controversial. He was sort of mm-hmm. an Indiana, he was like an Indiana Jones. Uh, he was an explorer, he was an archaeologist, and uh, he taught in university until some of his theories about the paranormal uh, came to the, you know, became public, and then he broke off with them. They 
they ballyhooed him, and he he had didn't want anything to do with them uh, after that. And some of his theories are odd, but some of them I think there's a little something in them that's worth thinking about. He had one theory called the stone tape theory that he believed that ghosts were not spirits of the of the departed, but instead were like impressions of the living that were left long ago when they were still living. And especially if they were real intense moments, they were somehow recorded in the nat- in the house or the natural surroundings. And he theorized that under certain conditions, these could be stored. These events were stored if there was damp rock around. Thus, it was called the stone tape theory. Now, you know, his critics just went to town with that. But if you think about it. Um, while the idea of natural objects retaining images and replaying them like a tape recorder sounds a little like a stretch, the idea of these ideas of these events being somehow recorded in time may not be so far fetched. Um, if you take away the tape recording concept and replace it with the events uh, or people from the past being witnessed through, say, ESP or say, you know, the idea of parallel universe, different, you know, looking into a different time. There's a, other ways that you could explain it that still kind of give part of this theory some validity. So I, I think it was really interesting, and I think perhaps the reason he got into the uh, water, you know, the damp rock thing was that he was also obsessed with dowsing, and he did a lot of research and wrote a book about that. So perhaps... Well, yeah, and Jan, the term uh, the term psychometry, I'm sure you're familiar with that, comes to oh, mind yes. as well. And many psychics who work in, for example, uh, unsolved murder cases, you know, will touch an object and, and get an impression, uh, which in many cases actually led to uh, the location of the body of the missing person and that type of thing. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I just started writing about that today. I'm calling this this chapter, this essay, The Menace of Things Possessed. And one of the things that I talked about, in in one of my fiction books, in in Rest in Police, I wrote a story called The Scarab. Part of it is based on a true story about a kind of possessed scarab that was in my family. And um, I got it from my mother, and she had gotten it. Her parents went to, uh, on a world tour in the 30s, and they brought her back a scarab from a pyramid in Egypt. And this thing was really weird. It was fastened onto a ring. There was no way to get it off, but it was like a sealing ring. You'd open it, you could make a seal with the bottom of it. And it kept falling off the ring. There was no physical way to explain it, but it did. And one day, it was lost. It, and it was a small green object, and it got lost on a, this huge front lawn. And they looked and looked, and they couldn't find it. Well, what happened was a few months later, uh, her parent, my uh, grandparents, got a letter from the people in Egypt from whom they had bought the scarab, and on that day, the scarab reappeared. And it was just a very weird kind of object. There are many objects. Uh, many people absolutely refuse to buy antiques or anything used because they believe that they might contain negative energy. And they can contain really positive energy too. It's it's an interesting. Oh, I agree. <laughs> it's such an interesting not, topic. I, I know you're not. I know you're not taking that position. I understand. Oh yeah, um, I'm, I'm not one of them. But I mean, I like old stuff. But a lot of people, and you know, it's real interesting that there are a lot of stories about 
things like that. In fact, I don't know if you remember, there was a great TV series, I think it was called Friday the 13th, that was about that subject. And they, they, the idea was that there were these accursed objects and these people owned a kind of antique or curio store and they would hear about an object and they'd go out and get it and then they had a repository in the back of their store that they could put these unsafe things in and then people would be protected from them. So it, and it was pretty good. They had some pretty good plots. But I imagine that some of these, these story lines came from some real accounts that people shared. Right, because if, if you consider the possibility that everything is energy, it doesn't matter whether it's a person or an animal or a tree or a scarab or, you know, whatever it, whatever it mm-hmm. might be. And it just, it may hold energy that's beneficial to you and, and it's very benevolent and it's something you work with well, or it may be something that you're not meant to have in your possession and, and it just, it's meant for someone else or maybe it's not meant for anyone at all. Maybe it needs a clearing and a blessing back to that topic again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think that's a good topic. And I think, and I want to use that if I made a springboard into something um, that I mentioned when I talked about the different types of ghosts. There's one type, and this is would be a ghost or a haunting, if, you know, kind of spread over. But I call it the ghosts as contagion. And these are a class of ghost or spirit that we might think of as contagious and that they produce a sort of infectious malaise and sometimes more than that. And you notice it, you feel it. And I can tell a story about it. In fact, um, a long time ago, one of my friends was house-sitting, a house that had one of those spirits. And you would never think of this as a haunted house. It was modern. It was beautiful. It was full of artwork. It belonged to an art professor and his wife. So we were over there visiting our friend. And at first, you think, oh, this is beautiful. And then after about five minutes, you start to get a little edgy. After about 10 minutes, you were looking over your shoulder, and then everybody wanted to leave. And I, this happened to me. It happened to, I, I found out, like millions of people who were there. And I asked my friend later, I said, how could you stand to, to stay there? And he said it was very difficult. And if he hadn't promised them that he would stay, he would have gone. It was just, you know, he felt obligated that it was really difficult. And these kind of play, these uh, uh, things, there's, a, there's actually a marvelous uh, story in literature, a classic ghost story by the English writer E.F. Benson called Caterpillars. And in it, this, this is a story of this, the narrator visits these friends at this Italian villa, and it's very beautiful and everything. But the minute he walks in the door, he knows, he senses something is wrong about the place. And it turns out that it is haunted by these awful, gross, icky, lumpy caterpillars with like crab-like claws, and they're um, they end up attacking another guest who avowed that he didn't believe in ghosts and people who did were asses and you know he was very obnoxious and one of the the caterpillar ghosts actually could be seen as a living uh caterpillar in one part of the story and this guest like squashed it with his foot and so of course you knew they were going to get him and he ends up dying of cancer the worms represented cancer 
And mm-hmm. although, you know, you don't want to take it as, you know, oh, uh, people get cancer because they're bad. That's not, the idea is that, and again, the story was written in 1912, so their idea of how cancer spread may be different than ours now. But the idea was that the negative energy was sort of attracted to this negative person rather than the other people. Jan, I would like to take a moment to welcome a new caller online. It's a Northeast hey. Texas. Good evening, Northeast Texas. Oh, good evening. Interesting conversation. Oh, great. Welcome. Uh, if you I have, have a, a question or a comment, feel free. Yes, I have a, a, a question uh, and a comment. Uh, I have a, I have a, my own personal ghost story. And, oh, uh, can you, will you share it? <laughs> well, sure. Uh, but I also wanted to ask you about how you got how you got started and how, how you became interested in this line of work. Well, um, sir, I became interested because of my own personal experiences uh, living in that haunted house that I described earlier in the show as a young Well, I was like in my early 20s. And that was something, you know, I couldn't explain it. It wasn't something I'd learned about in school. And yet it was very real and it was pretty scary. And I also had had a series of precognitive dreams that came true, names, dates, and places that, you know, I can't explain it, but they happened. These experiences put together, make, I, I was had a choice to either be afraid or to learn all I could about it. And I decided I would go for education. I would try to learn everything I could about the unexplained. So I've always been interested in anything paranormal. And in fact, I wrote a column for a magazine uh, in the 80s where I interviewed people who had any kind of paranormal experience, whether it was Bermuda Triangle, whether it was a ghost, whether it was like a, you know, urban legend, whatever it was, I interviewed them. And that was another thing that convinced me that this sort of thing is, it's not abnormal, it's normal, it's not para, it's not paranormal or supernatural, it's natural. It's just that culturally we're not as, you know, we're just now coming to the point that we feel free to talk about it without the fear of being, you know, locked away. <laughs> hmm. Have you had, uh, did you, uh, have you, uh, did you have any death in the family when you were young? Uh, you know, actually, no, I didn't. Uh, and my family uh, probably, we we were as children sheltered from death probably more than we should have been. So, no, I mean, I did, we didn't have any, like, you know, dead relatives haunting the house or anything like that. Or, you know, there was or no, no family who had lived with us and then passed away. I'm just shut. Just uh, just curious about that. Now to my ghost story. <clears throat> oh, great. I was about, uh, oh, I don't know, four or five years old. I was sleeping. We slept together, uh, the three boys. Uh, I was sleeping between my two brothers, and uh, they were both older than me. And I looked up in the closet, and of course there's clothes hanging in there, but they looked like people. And I decided I'd be better off in uh, in the other in the room with my mom and my stepdad. So I, I 
got up real quietly and crept into the hallway, and uh, I, was, I perceived this glow, little kind of greenish glow, to my right and down. So I looked down to my right, and there was this little kid, a little bit older than I was, little red-headed boy, grinning up at me. He's very benevolent, very friendly, but it scared the pee waddling crap out of me, and uh, I uh, proceeded to get the hell out of Dodge post today. Mm-hmm. And I went into my parents' room, and they wouldn't let me get into the bed with them, so I crawled underneath the bed and spent <laughs> the night underneath the bed because I was afraid to go back through the hall. Wow. And <laughs> But uh, I, I figure it was probably just I was scared and my imagination ran away with me. But it was weird because it wasn't, it wasn't a monster type thing. It was just a little boy about my age, a little older. Red-headed. Did you ever find out if, if perhaps a little boy like that had lived in the house maybe at some distant time in the past? No, I didn't. I, I tried to I tried to forget it, actually, put it behind me, but it was made of such an impression on me, it's always stayed with me. But uh, there was another time when I, I experienced, uh, what, what do you call it, a uh, premonition? Mm-hmm. I was in the, the lunchroom. A school lunchroom, and the principal and some teacher or something was coming down through the, winding their way down through the tables, and I knew which route they were going to take, and I knew what they were going to say before they did it, and that was pretty weird. I don't know what you call that. You named it a precognition. Yeah, but basically, I. About sixty percent don't bite, but about forty percent, forty percent curious. You know, and and you know, it, we don't know. We don't know what goes on. You know what I mean? Yes, and I I think well, first of all, thank you for sharing your stories. They're great. But I agree with you. I think it's you know it's there are different possible explanations for many things that happen. But it's they've done studies on this, and I guess there's like um, whether it's Project Blue Book or whether it's ghosts or whatever the the paranormal thing may be. According to the English author Colin Wilson in his book The Occult, which is sort of a classic, he uh, he found in his research that there's there's a solid like 15 to 18 percent. Of, of things that cannot be explained away, no matter what area you you choose, whether you're talking about ghosts or, you know, UFOs, anything. And I found yeah. that really interesting that that's consistent across the board. Um, and, it, you know, so I think it's, you know, maybe many things can be explained, but a lot of them can't. <laughs> and I saw yeah. someone of I was going to say I think I'm one of the people that likes that there. I like it to. I like that there's mystery. I like it that you can't explain everything. And, and speaking yeah. of writers, I'd like to take a moment, Jan, to well, mm-hmm. talk about an endorsement that you recently received from a contemporary writer of horror and ghost stories, the author 
F.G. Cobham, uh, oh. who, in reading your, your book, Death Be Not Loud, uh, before even finishing the book, made the remark, have read sufficient of the stories to be able to say they're smart, witty, original, and unsettling. They're also up to the second contemporary. It's like Dorothy Parker has been somehow revived and given Shirley Jackson's taste for the macabre. And, of course, you can quote me. You've got to love that kind of an endorsement, Dan. Oh, oh, I was so honored by that. He's, because he's one of my favorite writers. I think he writes the, the scariest stories today, and they does them better than anyone. I just think he's marvelous. But I thought that was so kind and generous to read, read my work and then to comment in the way that he did. I'm just, I'm still just in awe. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome, Jen. Jan, I, I have a I... question. Go ahead. Go ahead, sure. um, Do you do you find that the word uh, ghost is potentially very overused as kind of too broad a category? I don't know if you're familiar with. There had been a, a real interesting program for a while called Ghost Within My Child, and no. having watched a couple episodes of that, I don't consider them ghosts at all. My definition of ghost would be earthbound energy. It's, uh, it's a soul that has not yet crossed back over to home. Mm-hmm. And that's just my personal definition. And what they were actually exploring in that program was children who recalled their past lives very, very vividly. And they were oh, able to yeah. do a lot of research and to show that they had indeed been on um, this person before. Yeah, the, um, I've been really interested in the work of Dr. Ian Stevenson, who did a lot of uh, pioneering research about uh, the the children with the memories yes. from their past lives. I, you know, just fascinating the things yes. that they, the detail and the things that they can recall, and they yes. found some uh, corroborating evidence too, if I remember that correctly. Right, right, and it's things that smaller children or teenagers wouldn't know or hadn't ever been exposed to, which really lends yeah. a lot to the validity of it. And Carol Bowman um, has done a lot of writing and research in that area, too. Wow, that's very interesting. You sound like, you've, like you have a wealth of knowledge, Wendy. <laughs> oh, well, you're, you're very kind. I'm, I'm really enjoying what you're, what you're laying out. Um, it's, it's an area that I think people are hungry for knowledge, and I, I love your points about um, in England that just the culture is more more open open to it, and you know we as Americans are are working to catch up in a lot of ways. Yes, in fact, you know when you mentioned that, I re- I should uh, it reminds me uh, one of my see I, when I was in England I was in a theological college there. I'm an Episcopal priest retired, and one of my colleagues who. Uh, uh, was in class with me, uh, spent some years as an Anglican exorcist. She's a, a priest, but she and she works now as a parish priest. But she yes. uh, did, they actually, um, the Church of England actually uh, has people, each diocese assigns someone to be an exorcist. Here it's not the case. What would happen here would be, for example, if I ran across something that I thought would call for exorcism, which I might, I must tell you, has happened only once in my entire career, but it does happen. But what you would do, you would go to your bishop and talk about it, and then, you know, you may or may not, you probably would 
proceed. But there's, there's a, it's not in England. They already have somebody who's in charge of that because they, you know, they understand that the, these things happen, and they, right. so they work with these situations. And I think it's really important and good because people who are in that kind of situation really need emotional and spiritual support. And they need that from, if they're a member of a church or and even if they're not, if they come to you and say, you know, I'm having this spiritual issue, we should be there for them 100%, not be turning them away going, oh, yeah, well, right. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, or not so medicating really, them or locking them up. I mean, I think of a, oh, yeah. I think of a shaman um, but not everyone is familiar with or comfortable in working with a shaman to clear energy um, and to help support the person. Oh, no, I think, it, you know, um, I really believe that whatever, when it comes to spiritual support, whatever someone believes or doesn't believe, you support, I mean, as a chaplain, my training was to support that person's spirituality or lack thereof, wherever they're at, I'm there to support them. So if they wanted a rabbi, if they wanted a shaman, if they wanted whatever, part of my job would be to find that person. If not, then I would accompany them on their path however they saw it, you know. And it was really, it's quite an honor to be able to do that. But, you know, you absolutely have to respect where someone's coming from and what will be the most helpful for them. And they'll tell you. You know, absolutely. It's a very good point you brought up. I have a question. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, uh, my name is Henry, and who am I? Who, who are we talking to here? Oh, Dan. 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 Hi. Dan Owen. And the other lady is who? Wendy. My name Rose is Wendy Williams. Williams. Wendy. Wendy. Okay. Yeah. Wendy. Okay. Hip. Uh, and Jeff, uh, have any of y'all heard the term uh, genetic memory? Yes. What do you you think about that? Tell me what you mean by it when you say, uh, when you're talking about it, so we're all on the same page. We we inherit, Mm -hmm. like, memories or impressions or, or feelings or whatever from our ancestors. And which might come across as a past life regression type thing, or might might not. I don't know. I'm just asking I what think, y'all think about it. There's scientific evidence really that back up. There's there's been some some studies and some evidence that back up the theory that memories are passed down. Some memories are passed down through the genes, physically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I think but, you it's know, I don't know. I just thought I'd throw it out there and see what y'all think about it. I think I'm so glad you brought that up. I think that's intriguing, and I could see how that, you know, it's one of those things that while it might, you know, while in some cases some people might say, well, it's a, it's actually a past life, in some cases that you're, the way you describe that kind of genetic memory, it's, that's fascinating. It could actually account for a great many cases. And I think it's certainly uh, possible because there's so much we don't know about the brain and the mind. And people yeah, have, an, you know, I think that's brilliant. For an example, uh, I, I, was, I was raised in the South, and my ancestors are all Southern people. And mm-hmm. uh, 
when I was younger, I was uh, <coughs> very, <coughs> I guess you'd call me racist. Uh, so I worked through I worked through all of that and uh, over the years. But anyway, uh, but my ancestors were almost almost 100% sure was part of the Confederacy and probably fought for the Confederacy. And I'm wondering if that genetic memory, uh, and I, I don't have, I, I wasn't raised by people that are, you know, uh, gung-ho, uh, racist or Southern or whatever. I wasn't raised in that, in that Southern atmosphere. I was raised in the South, but not, you know, not, right. uh, not necessarily, uh, Southern, you know, but I'm wondering if that the genes played a part in me being drawn to the Confederate uh, view of life, the Confederate cause, and all that when I was younger. And I, I noticed it's really people, interesting theory. A lot of people live in the South that are very liberal, uh, still defend the. The, the display of the Confederate, the Confederate flag and Confederate monuments and stuff like that, and uh, so it's just something to think about. I don't know. I, I think it's got some. I think it's got some credence to it because it could explain things like genetic predisposition um, within within a family if there is some DNA um, cellular memory going on because there can be genetic predispositions to different types of diseases. Um, you can find something in what's called the family morphic field. And Robert Sheldrake um, wrote an interesting book about that. Um, what kind of field? Um, the family morphic field. So Rupert, Rupert Sheldrake, yes. Uh-huh. Yes. So as a like an easy example, um, I've got scoliosis, which is curvature of the spine. And I just find that really interesting that that so often runs in families and it even tends to pass down um, through the, the maternal side. So it's females much, much more often have scoliosis. And my mom has a mild case of it and both my daughters do too. And one of the um, wonderful healers that I work with personally and, and go and see for sessions from time to time is a woman, um, in fact, she's been on Rich's show before, Jude Ponton um, from Whispering Dragon. And she's what I would call an energetic chiropractor. She started as a traditional chiropractor but became an energetic chiropractor who uses matrix energetics and sound healing. Um, and we worked on that in, in a session. And I said, okay. Granted, I, I'm clear that I have scoliosis, but I don't need to suffer with it. I don't need to have pain from it, discomfort from it, um, lack of you know function, et cetera. And can we look at this from a family morphic field? Because it would sure be great if my mom didn't have to have issues with it and my daughters didn't. Can we clear this from the family morphic field? So Jude was mm-hmm. one of two or three people who had mentioned that um, Robert Sheldrake um, spoke to me, and we just worked to clear that energetically from the family morphic field because that kind of ties right in with, gee, is that you know then in the in the genes um, through through the family? Because I believe all energy can be healed. 
How about you, Wendy? Did you have you did you have any tra- tragedy in your early childhood? Um, I had a brother who passed on when I was a child. I would consider that, um, you know, kind of a kind of a, a a tragedy and something unusual. But was it traumatic for you though? Um, yes and no. Um, he he was born with major mental retardation. Um, and had to be institutionalized, so I would consider that more of a tragedy rather than um, his his passing. Right, I understand. And you were raised a religious? No, I was not. I was raised as Protestant, um, and it was a very um, joyful, easy. There was not a lot of dogma. There was not a lot of indoctrination. So I'm very fortunate that I got to. Um, skip over um, a lot of the, the negativity that can that can um, be restrictive for people. I, I I got the I got the good part. I got the you know the fun uh, Sunday picnics and grandma singing in the choir um, and just a lot of a lot of the positive. Yeah, well, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I, <laughs> I uh, 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 Psychology is my is my my hobby, and birth order in particular, personality theory, and so. Oh, I, I, I love that. Forgive me, <laughs> forgive me. I'm I'm kind of asking some survey questions. No, here. that's that's absolutely fine. But yeah, it's really interesting stuff, and uh, there is something there's something going on that we don't know about. It. I know that because they, I don't know if you heard about it, but before 9/11, they had these sensors set up all around the world. To pick up energy. Did y'all hear about that? And yes, and many psychics predicted 9/11. Yes. About, about a week or two before 9/11, the energy level all around the world spiked, and it, mm-hmm. and it kept. I mean, it spiked just before 9/11 happened. Yeah. Wow. And that's that's something that's going to be kind of hard to explain away if if uh, if it's true. Well, Jan, I think you're, you're familiar with Carl Jung and the collective unconscious. I think that mankind, on a subconscious level, had a precognitive awareness of 9/11, perhaps. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's well, an, that's a very good theory, and I do think that. Um, I mean, I'm a, a I like Jung's ideas, and the idea of the universal unconscious uh, has a lot of validity. I think, and it it helps give us context for many of these things that we find difficult to explain. Well, I'll tell you this. I'll let you in on a secret. Uh, Okay. I knew something was going to happen before 9-11. I mean, something big. Mm -hmm. How did you know? Tell us more about that. (laughs) It was a feeling. Well, I I know about world events. In my Mm -hmm. case, it it was because, you know, uh, we were, we were, uh, we were due payback. I uh, see. So you're saying that based on your, uh, not your, it was an expectation based on your knowledge of uh, world right. of international <laughs> affairs. Yeah, okay. I don't call it premonition or anything like that. But yeah. but uh, I'm not the only one. Apparently, people all over the world had a feeling that something was going to happen. I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. But when it did happen, I. I you know, I, I said to myself, I knew it. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a theory, too, of, of countries having karma, not just individuals. 
And I don't view karma as punishment. I view karma as writing scales um, mm-hmm. that you need to come to balance yeah. and that karma is a teaching tool. And much as I love the United States, um, I was not born here. I was born in Canada. But as much as I consider it a privilege to live here, and I mean, I have a choice where I can live. Um, mm-hmm. I do believe that, that there are issues with the U.S. having been at war um, almost every year since our inception, and we were born through revolution. So I do believe there's a lot of karma um, that we're we're settling out, and how interesting we're having this conversation on Canada Day, and in three yeah. days it's going to be 4th of July. Um, yeah. So that's, I mean, there's there's a lot there's a lot going on with with the energy of of countries, and and both countries are 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 um, Cancer as their their sun sign, so there's just there's just a lot of numerology and just a lot of um, different theories that come up around all that. What you're bringing up? Yeah, did you did did y'all ever watch uh, Lunch with Bokara? No. On the PBS, I mean, uh, 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 what was it? I'm not sure where. Anyway, they had this scientist on there, and this. Uh, this uh, preacher woman, and uh, they would they would get people together and discuss things. Anyway, this scientist said that uh, when you look at the smallest organism, like the, well, say for example a human cell, then that's not the end. You go past that and you look at something smaller, and you go past that and you look at something smaller, and you get get into the subatomic level and you keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and until there's nothing left. Well, Henry, in past shows, Wendy and I have talked about at the bottom line, everything is just energy. And so we're all all interconnected on an energetic level. It's energy. Hello? Yep. (laughs) Yeah, we're just letting our energy talk for us. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think we, we lost, maybe we lost Northeast Texas. I'm not sure, but uh, he'll probably call back in if we did. But, Tan, this has been uh, fantastic. Tell tell us more about where your books are, are available. Well, um, they can be, they're all on Amazon. Um, if you look up my name, Jan Olandesi, on, uh, and you just look under books and type my name in, you will get uh, all three. One is Rest in Fleece, Ghosts, Tall Tales, and Horror Stories. One is Death Be Not Loud, Ghosts, Haunts, and Tall Tales for Restless Nights. And my nonfiction book is called About Ghosts, a Useful Handbook. Dan, can you Dan, spell you your have... name for, for the listeners? Yes, Jen also has a, a blog, a WordPress. Could you tell us about it, to Jen, uh, as well? Yeah, as- yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, let me let me get over here just a minute. Uh, While she's doing that, yeah. I will tell you that it is known as bookumjanoblog.wordpress.com. Yes. So if you go on to WordPress, uh, WordPress, you can can find her there as bookumjano, which I absolutely love. Just like the title of your book, Rest in Fleece and uh, yeah. There's a lot of humor, uh, humor in her ghost stories as well, which makes it very easy for the reader to relate to. Yeah, they are. They are funny, I think, but some of them aren't. Um, 
that some of them are quite amusing because, and that's because I, I don't know, I'm a Sagittarius, so I, I go for humor. <laughs> what can I say? Um, but yeah, um, uh, my my blog is um, again uh, Bookham Jano. It's bookhamjanoblog.wordpress.com, and um, I put something up every day. Um, sometimes a haiku, sometimes. Uh, go, you know some of the kind of things we've been discussing today. Um, I'll be putting up some stories, you know. So, and I welcome people to check in. It would be wonderful to have you all read up. Read up. <laughs> what was the name of that nonfiction book? Oh, my blog is called. <clears throat> it's uh, Bookham Jano. It's like Bookham Dano except with a J. Uh, Bookham Jano blog dot wordpress dot com. Thanks. Uh-huh. And everyone, the names of her books are Death Be Not Loud, Rest in Fleece, and About Ghosts. Thank and you. And as I, I <laughs> close the show out in about five minutes, I'm going to give uh, Jan the last five minutes to make a, a final comment or, or statement if there's a final thought well, or word of advice that you would give to everyone concerning uh, ghosts and ghost research, what would it be, Jan? Well, I don't know if I give it advice. I guess what I'd say is, um, you know, one thing I think that is important, and I mention this in my fiction stories, but I think it's really important, actually, in not in nonfiction life. Go with your gut. If you okay. go into a place and you get a negative feeling about it, if you feel like it's, you know, bad energy, don't hang around. You know, don't be there. These pe- don't be like the people in the haunted house stories that they stay in there and like the Amityville people, you know, terrible things happen. You know, if it's bad, leave. <laughs> you know, that that would be one thing. Um, and and don't be afraid of, the, in general, if you, you know, most things are not going to be dangerous or bad. So try not to fear it. Try to learn about it. And if you uh, want support, there's, a, you know, uh, you can email or write me on my blog, or um, you can. And also, I have an email that I can be written to at, and it is ghostpertise. That's g h o s t p e r t i s e at gmail dot com. So um, you can, uh, you know, ask me about stuff. You're welcome to. And there's plenty of people out there who, are for support and encouragement, uh, don't you know if something's. Uh, don't let something be scary. Jan, I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. Jan Olandy, oh. go to Amazon and check out her books. Wendy, thank you for calling in. Henry, thank you for calling in. For all of our listeners tonight, we appreciate you being here. Thank everybody you. Everybody so have a great evening. Great super okay, evening, and everybody too. have a happy July 4th. Thank you so yeah, much. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.